Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The governments of the United States and Europe support with words and weapons virtual genocide against Gaza, but people all over the earth say we stand with Palestine. And two new books by the eminent historian Gerald Horn offer an overview of his vast body of historical research and why the last 500 years of slavery, colonialism, and racism have everything to do with today. What we're talking about with regard to white supremacy and anti-blackness should not necessarily be seen as episodic or accidental or somehow incongruent or inconsistent with societal norms but that it's embedded in societal norms. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, the Palestinian Center for Human Rights reports that Israel's bombing of Gaza is resulting in mass killings and destruction of entire residential civilian neighborhoods, streets, and civilian infrastructure. Gaza's Ministry of Health said Thursday that at least 1,537 Palestinians have been killed, including 500 children and 276 women, with more than 6,600 injured, and 60% of those injured are children and women. At the same time, Israel has cut off deliveries of food, water, fuel, medicines, and any humanitarian aid. This is Ali Abunima, editor of Electronic Intifada. This is a, a really a genocidal war on Palestinians in Gaza, declared as such by Israel. The defense minister uh, referred to Palestinians as human beasts. And uh, when he declared that he would be imposing a total siege, Israel has threatened to bomb any aid convoys from Egypt and has bombed the Rafah border crossing now several times. So there is a a planned intent by Israel to cause as much suffering to the population in Gaza as possible. Human Rights Watch confirmed Thursday that Israel has deployed the chemical weapon white phosphorus in Gaza and at the border with Lebanon. White phosphorus severely burns people down to the bone and ignites surrounding buildings and structures on fire. These mass killings are occurring after Hamas staged a surprise attack on Israel beginning on October 7th, killing at least 1,300 people, including soldiers and hundreds of civilians. Their attack exposed tremendous weakness in what has always been painted as world-leading military and intelligence services of Israel. Since then, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to quote-unquote flatten Gaza, which was already a virtual open-air prison, suffering under a total air, land, and sea blockade by Israel for nearly two decades. Hamas named their attack Operation Al-Aqsa Flood to commemorate Palestinians attacked by Israeli soldiers while praying at Islam's second holiest shrine. Many Gaza families were forced to live there after being robbed of their homes and land in the 1948 invasion of Palestine called the Nakba. 
during which 700,000 Palestinians were either killed or ethnically cleansed from their communities by Zionist militia. This is journalist Abby Martin, who produced the 2019 film Gaza Fights for Freedom. The situation is completely unlivable. Even the UN said that it's, it's an uninhabitable situation and it would be completely uninhabitable by 2020. So where are we at? Where is the international community when it comes to what is going on in Gaza, where two million people are caged like animals, denied water, electricity, freedom to move and medical attention? What do you think is going to happen? You think these people aren't going to retaliate? When you torture people and push them to the brink, of course they're going to. Um, but of course, Israel will use any sort of retaliation and cloak itself in this self-righteousness of, oh, well, we need to defend ourselves from these rocket attacks that are just indiscriminately fired. Um, meanwhile, they have targeted munitions that target entire residential neighborhoods and families while they sleep in bed. You know, it's just it's just unfathomable unfathom um, and unconscionable what Israel does to collectively punish anyone living in Gaza. And of course, the Great March of Return sparked off. And that's where you saw tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting their caged existence. Ahmed Abu Artema said that he saw birds flying between, you know, Gaza and their ancestral lands and just said this is against human nature. The occupation flies in the face of what it is to be human. U.S. and European officials and corporate media are only adding fuel to the fire. President Biden called the attack by Hamas sheer evil and repeated Israel's false story about 40 infants found dead and beheaded by Hamas. But he stayed silent about the fact of mass slaughter of civilians in Gaza and increasing murders of Palestinians by Jewish settlers on the occupied West Bank. He sent the aircraft carrier, the USS Ford, near Gaza and Saudi Arabia suspended efforts at normalization talks with Israel. Meanwhile, at Israel's northern border with Lebanon, Israeli soldiers and Hezbollah are trading fire across the border, killing fighters on both sides. Finally, in culture and media, the organization Defending Rights and Dissent is reporting that protests in support of Palestine, resistance to apartheid Israel, are facing harassment and threats from the FBI and other law enforcement agencies. Despite the intimidation tactics, thousands marched in a Manhattan rally on October 8th, the same day that a thousand rallied and marched in front of the White House. Demonstrators held a noisy demonstration outside an October 12th fundraiser for Israel held by the Jewish National Fund here in downtown Washington, D.C. Rapper Kevin of the group Son of None performed. The vendetta, a policy of extermination against an indigenous population that's been fighting for emancipation. <laughs> This is for Bashar, this is for Mahmoud, this is for Tahir, this is 
a bottle. Who was only seven and some man shot dead at school at the age of 11? What would you do if you were under occupation? Let them take your freedom or fight for liberation. That was Kevin of Son of None performing in downtown D.C. Thursday night. Also in D.C., an all-out for Gaza rally is being planned for Friday the 13th, 6.30 p.m. at Franklin Park, 1332 I Street Northwest. And on Saturday, October 14th, there's a global day of action for Palestine, and the D.C. action will be at 1 p.m. at Lafayette Square in front of the White House. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. So, we must ask ourselves, what is the dictionary definition of terrorism? The systematic use of terror, especially as a means of coercion. But what is terror? According to the dictionary I hold in my hand, terror is violent or destructive acts such as bombing committed by groups in order to intimidate a population or government into granting their demands so what's a terrorist they're calling me a terrorist like they don't know who the terrorist when they put it on me i tell them this i'm all about peace and love they're calling me a terrorist like they don't know who Insulting my intelligence Oh, how these people judge It seems like the rackheads and packies are worrying your dad But your dad's favourite food is curry and kebab It's funny but it's sad How they make your mummy hurry with her bags Rather read the sun and study all the facts Tell me, what's the bigger threat to human society? BAE systems or homemade IEDs Remote control drones Killing off human lives Or man with homemade bomb committing suicide I know you were terrified When you saw the towers fall It's all terror But some forms are more powerful It seems nuts How could there be such agony When more Israelis die from peanut allergies It's like the definition didn't never exist I guess it's all just dependent who your nemesis is Irrelevant how eloquent the rhetoric peddler is they're telling fibs now, tell us who the terrorist is They're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist When they put it on me, I tell them this I'm all about peace and love They're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist Insulting my intelligence Oh, how these people judge was democracy, Mossadegh was democracy, Allende was democracy, hypocrisy, it bothers me, call you terrorists if you don't want to be a colony, refuse to bow down to a policy of robbery, it's terrorism, my lyrics, when more Vietnam vets killed themselves after the war than died in it, this is very basic, one nation in the world has over a thousand military bases, they say it's religion, when clearly it isn't, it's not just Muslims that oppose your imperialism, it's Hugo Chavez, a Muslim, nah, I didn't think so, it's 
Joe a Muslim? Nah, I didn't think so. It's like the definition didn't ever exist. I guess it's all just dependent who your nemesis is. Irrelevant how eloquent the rhetoric peddler is. They're telling fibs now. Tell us who the terrorist is. They're calling me a terrorist. Like they don't know who the terrorist is. When they put it on me, I tell them this. I'm all about peace and love. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And in a time like this, I can't think of anyone I'd like to speak to more than our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, and the author of more than 40 books, including two new books, I Dare Say, and Acknowledging Radical Histories, that he completed with two up-and-coming scholars. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I kind of want to start with, I dare say, it includes a series of articles and essays that you actually had time to write in between writing your many books. And you cover topics as disparate, but bound in a way, such as Black versus white ownership of guns. It includes the introduction to one of your books that we've discussed, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. And it even includes a deep dive into gangsters and the political economy of capitalism. So I find so many threads in the book related to current crises, specifically the war in Ukraine and now in Gaza, and how there's evidence of the different narratives that different communities are told inside their separate silos. You know, like when I read your piece on guns, for example, I remembered how during the p- pandemic here in D.C., and I live near Silver Spring, how there were lines of white people, like, <laughs> lined up to buy guns. And my son was was with me at the time, and he said, you know, Mom, you know, um, wow, you should check out these lines at this, you know, I didn't even know there were gun stores up there, but there were lines of people to buy guns because in the crisis that we were experiencing in terms of lockdowns and uh, economic distress to a lot of people, obviously there were some people being told on radio, on television or whatever, that you better go buy a gun to protect yourself, protect your community. And, and then I also thought about how you were talking about the casual acceptance of the increased arming of the far right in this country. And I'm definitely relating that to the extreme militarism, hyper-militarism of this country extended to its proxies and allies like Israel. So anyway, that's a long (laughs) introduction to my first question, but I just wanted to to throw that out there to give your top line thoughts about some of these things that you discuss in your book and what's happening this week. Well, first of all, with regard to Ukraine, there's a piece in the I Dare Say book written post-February 2022 where I try to historicize 
the background for the special military operation. That is to say, uh, fundamentally, there has been a contradiction in European history uh, going back centuries insofar as the richer countries that got rich on the plunder of the Americas and the enslavement of Africans, speaking of the Western European nations, were not necessarily the most powerful nation on their continent. That was Russia. And that led to Napoleon two centuries ago, trying to resolve that contradiction by invading Russia and having his hat handed to him. That led a few decades later to the Crimea War, where Britain and France, along with the sick man of Europe, Ottoman Turkey, gang up on Russia. That led to Britain circa 1904, financing the Japanese attack on the British Empire. It led to Operation Barbarossa, June 1941, with Berlin seeking to seize Russia. And of course, the entire Cold War episode from 1917 to 1991. So NATO creeping eastward has been the continuation of a long-term trend. Likewise, I don't think you can understand the promiscuous arming, particularly of the descendants of the settlers, without, once again, talking about settler colonialism, which has been conspicuously absent from the vocabularies of many of our friends on the left who tend to lean towards a romanticized view of the founding of the United States and of the uh, vaunted constitution of the United States not seeming to recognize that the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms only applied to the settlers. It certainly didn't apply to the Africans. And it was a strategic objective of the settlers to keep weapons out of the hands of the indigenous population. It was only with the rise of the Black Panther Party in the 1960s that you had serious movement towards gun control because, of course, there was a fear that once again, blacks would be arming not only arming, but arming themselves in contingents and detachments. And that particular contradiction still haunts the gun control uh, debate. Uh, There is quite a bit in this book, as you suggest, about the class question, but various aspects of the class question that oftentimes are not tackled. For example, the lumpen question. Uh, One of the ways that one can view what happened in Russia post-1991 was the rise of lumpen culture and the decline of working class culture. You saw something similar happen in the United States in recent decades with the rise of so-called gangster rap and the uh, heroizing of the lumpen uh, to the point where gangster becomes not only a noun, but a verb and a verb that you should salute. And I trace how that has taken place, not only in the United States, but as my remarks about uh, Russia suggests, uh, globally. And also, I tackle certain controversial questions. You know, I wrote a book some years ago on Black Americans' relationship to Japan. And even though I made it clear that if I had been around during World War II, uh, I would not have been a part of that pro-Tokyo coalition, I've still been criticized for even writing about it. I guess certain topics are just forbidden or for, forbidden. You're not supposed to raise them uh, somehow. But I think we need to be reminded that uh, there was a very potent pro-Tokyo lobby amongst Black Americans. And once again, you can make an argument that the uh, atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, August 1945, had a lot to do with the fact that the United States saw itself in a so-called race war 
and were totally bamboozled and miffed by the reality that Japan, Imperial Japan, uh, had developed close ties to Black America. And this was sort of a reminder to any country that wanted to move in this direction that atomic bombing could be your fate. So, I mean, I could go on in this vein, but of course, uh, the best way to tackle this book is to read it. Exactly. And it is full of these types of insights that, in a way, they they can be considered springboards to your larger books. I think in a previous interview, we called it kind of like cliff notes, because uh, you can see maybe the outlines of some of the ideas that you you flesh out more fully in your books. And one of the pieces that really intrigued me was the piece you did on genetics. And I had actually forgotten that whole controversy during the 90s when there were actual efforts on a federal level to kind of consider that young people, especially who may rebel or be um, caught up in resistance movements or uprisings in our communities that maybe they have something wrong with them mentally or genetically, or there's something that then can be addressed on a psychiatric level or something. Can you just talk about that and just talk about that whole episode and how there had to be a real fight back of courageous Black elected officials at that time to really fight against this effort toward almost like a um, what could be a genocide in terms of of trying to control a population through through drugs or or even surgery like lobotomies or something similar to that if they were able to convince people that it was a a medical or psychiatric problem as opposed to a problem of poverty, racial discrimination, degradation of families and all the social ills that come from, you know, living in a, a capitalist society. Well, there you have it. Uh, Unfortunately and sadly and tragically, there has been an ongoing effort in the public health community, I'm afraid to say, in the United States of America and their funders and donors to suggest that the problem is not with capitalism, the problem is not with exploitation, the problem is not with the legacy that is pernicious of slavery and its cousin, that is to say, Jim Crow. The problem is with, with Black people. <laughs> that, we're the problem. And right. this, of course, stretches back uh, to the era of slavery. You're probably familiar with J. Marion Sims, who at one time was considered to be the father of OBGYN, uh, mm-hmm. who in Dixie experimented on Black women in order to, quote, perfect, unquote, certain techniques that were used for decades, uh, not only in the United States, but around the world. In fact, there were statutes in his honor uh, in the United States uh, until quite recently. Your audience, I'm sure, is familiar with the Tuskegee syphilis experiment beginning in Tuskegee, Alabama. Books, TV movies, etc., have been written about it. That is to say, uh, Black men in particular uh, being traduced and told that supposedly they were being treated for sexually transmitted diseases But in fact, they were not because the experiment was to somehow ascertain uh, what would happen uh, if these sexually transmitted diseases would spread, which, of course, they did with regard to their sexual partners uh, and others. And just this week, uh, there was uh, an intriguing piece by the New York Times columnist uh, Charles Blow, 
about the RSV vaccine, which <laughs> I just uh, had administered to myself, uh, mm. given uh, a consultation with my own physician. And apparently uh, there's uh, something uh, odious about the development of that particular vaccine in terms of uh, supposedly there were certain experiments that were not duly authorized on black people that led to the development of this vaccine, which reminds us that what we're talking about with regard to white supremacy and anti-blackness should not necessarily be seen as episodic or accidental Mm -hmm. or somehow incongruent or inconsistent with societal norms, but that it's embedded in societal norms. And certainly uh, these ideas that uh, there is something amiss, something awry uh, with regard to the so-called IQ of black youth, uh, with regard to the genetic makeups, allegedly, of black youth, it's very dangerous. It can lead uh, many of us uh, over the cliff. And I trust and I hope that the public health community, uh, young medical students, the nursing community, physicians, etc., will pay careful and close attention to that particular piece in this particular book. And that book that we are talking about is, I dare say, a Gerald Horn reader. It is described as a timely and essential collection of the many works of Professor Gerald Horn, an historian who has made an indelible impact on the study of U.S. and international history. And as we know, he approaches his study of history as a deeply politically engaged scholar with an insight and necessarily partisan stance, critiquing the lasting reverberations of white supremacy and all its bedfellows, imperialism, colonialism, fascism, and racism, which continue to wreak havoc in the United States and abroad to this day. It is edited by Tian Aliyah Paris, and this is one of the scholars that Gerald described to us a couple of weeks ago, one of the young scholars he is passing the torch on to, to keep up on these issues that get short shrift, we should say, in the academy. Second book that we're going to talk about is Acknowledging Radical Histories. Both books are tremendous. They cover so many different topics that sometimes we, we didn't get a chance to, to speak about in depth on the show, Gerald. Uh, Gerald is so gracious to spend his time with us to uh, not only talk about the current issues of the day, but to go in depth with these types of books on a regular basis. And, you know, there aren't many places that we can get this very important analysis. We're not getting in that corporate media, that's for sure. Most of the people I talked to said that they had to turn off the television this week. It was so disgusting. It was so horrible to see the hypocrisy, the double standards, the devaluing of Palestinian lives, the upholding of people like Senator Lindsey Graham calling for Israel to level Gaza. And, Gerald, that's something that I was going to talk to you next, because you, you when you talk about the piece, your piece on genetics, for example, I related that to what's happening today, because in the Ukraine conflict, when the far right or neo-Nazis or Nazis were allowed to speak and actually give their views of Russia. They called them mongrels. They called them subhumans. They tried to separate that out and say that the Russians weren't white. And so there was another dimension to that war that 
most Americans didn't hear during the Ukraine conflict, the Burrell of the EU calling everything out of Europe the jungle. You have Israeli officials calling Palestinians human animals. And as I just mentioned, Senator Lindsey Graham called for Israel to level Gaza, which means basically ethnic cleansing. And that is going right on the hills of Netanyahu, basically saying that all Gazans should leave, that that Palestinians should leave Gaza. But at the same time, the exit for them into Egypt was bombed. His far right defense minister has been quoted saying that Palestinians either have to leave, die or accept subjugation under Jewish rule. So these are the types of statements being made that cast Palestinians as the other, that question their status as human beings. And so the kinds of things that you talk about in the book have a resonance today, and they're definitely a part of the whole continuation of that type of racist ideology. Indeed. And in fact, an aspect, I'm afraid to say, of this present crisis in historic Palestine is that it illustrates the absolute necessity for Pacifica Radio because we see that at times of crisis, the U.S. ruling class tends to throw so-called constitutional protections out of the window. Uh, this is nothing new. Uh, for example, during the war in the Korean Peninsula, 1950 to 1953, uh, that was the era whereby you saw the marginalizing, the bludgeoning of those like the great Paul Robeson. And then when that crisis seemed to be ebbing in the infamous Yates case in the U.S. Supreme Court in 1957, uh, basically the ruling was that, sure, you have certain rights, constitutional rights, freedom of association, etc. But if you tend to gain influence from the left, uh, those rights can be suspended. And we see that happening as we speak with regard to this inordinate pressure on DSA, D Democratic Socialists of America, the inordinate pressure on certain members of Congress to toe the line, inordinate pressure on law students who have spoken out against uh, these crimes against humanity in Gaza and have job offers uh, being taken away. Uh, we see it in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the right wing has sponsored these trucks with billboards going through the streets, flashing the details, the pictures of students at Harvard who were courageous enough to speak out, speak out mm -hmm. against these mm -hmm. Israeli crimes against humanity. And so this crisis, once again, illustrates how desperately we need a strong Pacifica, because on Pacifica, this is the site where you will learn that the Israelis may have overreached with regard to their policies in recent years, that obviously this rather draconian policy against the Palestinians has backfired spectacularly. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu may be politically dead as a direct result of this crisis. He'll have to pull a rabbit out of the hat in order to avoid that ignominious fate. And it reminds me, in fact, of his ideological ancestors, speaking of the slave owners in the United States of America, who in 1860, 1861, they also overreached. That is to say, the Lincoln administration was willing to cut a deal with the slave owners to lengthen the life of enslavement of Africans. 
But that was not enough for them. They decided to go for the gusto and try to overthrow the Lincoln regime and wound up losing it all, including their most valuable investment, their investment in the bodies of enslaved Africans. And you see something similar, perhaps, unfolding in historic Palestine. And sadly and tragically, the United States has been complicit uh, in this tragedy and is magnifying and making the situation worse by sending this flotilla off the coast of Israel. There is this drumbeat of propaganda as we speak, suggesting that Iran has been implicated in what the opposition in Gaza, Hamas, has sought to do, which would then lead to an attack on Iran by the U.S. and Israel, opening the gates of hell. The outgoing speaker, Kevin McCarthy, has spoken of a new axis of evil that not only includes Mm. Iran, but Russia and China as well. And there are those who suggested that any who back Iran also need to be attacked, which, of course, would include Russia and China as well. We know that undergirding this harebrained philosophy is the equally harebrained thinking of the present U.S. ambassador to Japan, speaking of Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago, who said during the Obama years, never let a crisis go to waste. And so, therefore, U.S. imperialism feels that it would be letting a crisis go to waste if they were not positioned to attack Iran and perhaps Russia and China, too, which, of course, reminds us once again of a discredited nostrum, this by the late Pentagon chief Donald Rumsfeld, who suggested uh, before he passed away that if you have a problem, the way to deal with that problem is to expand it. Now, that sounds illogical, but what he is intimating is that that may change the dynamics. And so, therefore, you have a problem in Gaza, ultimately in the West Bank, possibly in uh, southern Lebanon with Hezbollah, which is also being touted as a so-called Iranian proxy. So the way you deal with that problem is to expand the problem to encompass perhaps Iran, perhaps uh, Russia and China as well. So this is a very dangerous moment, perhaps a turning point in recent world history. And that is just one more reason why we need Pacifica, a strong Pacifica now more than ever. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you. So the first thing that I thought about in terms of acknowledging radical history is the title is the fact that so many people don't really know 
about the history of Palestine, right? And when you acknowledge a radical history, it means to me that you have to you have to start like a century ago, right? And how Israel was created out of the whole era of colonialism and that the UK, British, gave away land that it wasn't, wasn't theirs to give uh, to uh, Israel under the so-called Balfour Declaration. And then in 1948, uh, they allowed Zionist militias to basically ethnically cleanse Palestine and 700,000 people lost their land, lost their homes and were driven out of Palestine or killed. And when you talk about Gaza now, people don't understand that many of those families, even from 1948, were pushed into this narrow strip of land called the Gaza Strip, which is what it is today. And Two million people plus living in what has been deemed an open air prison that human rights organizations said that would be uninhabitable in 2021. You know, and so a lot of people don't understand that since for 17 years now, there's been an air, land and sea blockade of Gaza where Israel controls everything that's uh, happens there, the food, the the water, there's not potable water, there's not water for people to drink. Their facilities have been bombed so that raw sewage is pumped into the their beach area where they might have some respite. It's been bombed several times and several attacks. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but people are always looking at the current numbers as if, you know, these numbers matter of the people slaughtered on both sides. And I'm not belittling anyone killed in Israel, but if we want to total up the people killed, you know, during this whole occupation of Palestine, there's just no comparison to the numbers of people, Palestinians killed, injured, maimed, um, displaced in this last century, definitely in the last 70 years. Well, I would make a special appeal to Black Americans, not only because we realize that injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere, and that if there can be depredations inflicted upon the Palestinians, it makes it more possible and likely that further depredations can be inflicted upon our community, but as well because a man who has been foisted upon us as a kind of hero, speaking of the black American by the name of Ralph Bunch, who won a Nobel Prize because of his role in the creation of the state of Israel, 1947-1948. Recall he was a former Howard University professor, once on the left, but as oftentimes happens in the United States, who moved steadily to the right, uh, to the point where his supervisor, uh, during that conflict in West Asia, speaking of Count Folk Bernadotte of Sweden, was assassinated. And there is reason to suspect that the Zionist terrorists assassinated Folk Bernadotte because they thought that promoting Ralph Bunch to replace him uh, would be to their advantage. <laughs> it turned out that uh, they happened to be correct. And so uh, we have a stake, speaking to Black people in particular, with regard to helping to right these wrongs. And likewise, I think we need a deeper and better analysis of the Zionist project, which, as you know, develops in the late 19th century, based upon the premise that the anti-Jewish fervor could not be eradicated. And so therefore, there needs to be a Jewish state. But as we see, 
with the events of October 7th, 2023 and beyond, that having a Jewish state does not necessarily ensure the security of Jewish people. In fact, by gathering them in one place, you can make an argument that it further jeopardizes the security of Jewish people. And then, uh, speaking of which, we should have a stake, that is to say, the people of the United States as a whole, across racial lines, across confessional lines, across ethno-religious lines, even across class lines, in terms of battling settler colonialism. This week, we marked Indigenous Peoples Day, and there is presently, fortunately, a movement to recognize that the United States is the ultimate settler colonial regime that engaged in dispossession and indeed liquidation of countless numbers of indigenous peoples. And therefore, as people who live in this settler colonial regime, we're duty bound to pay attention to what might be the ultimate chapter in terms of the trajectory of settler colonialism in Israel-Palestine today, which is just one more reason why now more than ever, we need a vibrant Pacifica, we need a strong Pacifica, because if we do not have a vibrant and strong Pacifica, we will not be able to learn the lessons of history. Certainly, you won't learn the lessons of history on CNN or NPR or MSNBC. You'll hear further propaganda at best, One of the things I really like about this book project, Gerald, is the fact that I learned so much more about you personally. You talk about growing up in St. Louis, how your brother played jazz records and how you were first introduced to jazz music and learned to love it and really wrote about it later, years later in the book that I think that we've talked about, you know, jazz and justice and and just how your personal life as an activist, a student, a lawyer, now an historian, an author of so many books is kind of woven through some of the text. And I think that that was a real treat for me because we've talked a little bit about, you know, like your work life and stuff, but, you know, it was just really a treat to to hear you talk about, you know, growing up and, and the things that influenced you and the things that you really loved. And when it comes to the other issue around acknowledging radical histories, I realized when I was reading that book that I don't know if we ever really talked about the root of white supremacy. I think that we had in a sense, but you really lay it out in a way that I think is really concise in that book when you talk about it being connected to the Crusades and a few other occurrences in history right after that. Can you just talk just a little bit about how white supremacy or the idea of race. Well, I also addressed that uh, in the aforementioned book, uh, I dare say, as well. Mm-hmm. But the argument th- that I make is that in order to understand this new militarized, racialized identity politics of whiteness and white supremacy, You have to understand settler colonialism, which helps us to understand how and why it was that those who had been warring on the shores of Europe, English versus Irish, English versus Scots, Britain versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Russian versus Estonian, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, Serb versus Croat, 
All of a sudden, when they cross the Atlantic, uh, they adopt a new identity, which is whiteness, which then easily morphs into white supremacy. But it's more than that, because whiteness has a certain kind of elasticity that, as you suggested, bears the earmarks of the preceding era, the preceding era being the era of religious conflict. And so, therefore, if you look at a country like Lebanon, for example, uh, those who are Lebanese Christian can be more easily inducted into the hollowed halls of whiteness. Think of Ralph Nader, for example, the former presidential candidate who's of Lebanese descent, who I understand is viewed as, quote, white, unquote, or the uh, late comic uh, Danny Thomas and his daughter Marlo Thomas, uh, who, of course, are of Lebanese uh, Christian descent, whereas the uh, Lebanese Muslims, Hezbollah, they're third world. And what that reflects wow. is, is the fact that in some ways, the whole race project uh, grows out of religious conflict, uh, particularly the Crusades going back to the 11th century. And it also helps to explain how and why it is that the nation we now call Britain expelled this Jewish population at the end of the 13th century. But by the 16th century, when it was figuratively, if not literally, under the gun from the Spanish, recall that in 1588, the Spanish came within an eyelash of overthrowing the monarchy uh, in London. The Spanish, of course, privileged religion, privileged Catholicism. Uh, that helps to explain the Inquisition, that, that uh, ignoble era when uh, under the Spanish crown, you either conferred it to Catholicism as a Jewish person or as a Muslim, or you would be tortured or liquidated. Britain, of course, uh, moving towards race, then pivoted and began to welcome the Jewish population uh, after expelling their own Jewish population at the end of the 13th century. And in order to understand present-day racial dynamics in the United States, particularly what has been referred to prosaically as the so-called uh, Judeo-Christian project, you have to understand that backstory, uh, which also helps to understand the proliferation of Zionism on these shores, leading to this present crisis in Israel-Palestine, which could easily uh, tip in to World War III. And so there is uh, much to discuss in, in that particular book, Acknowledging Radical Histories. And I should also say, and I'm going to be saying this repeatedly in, in coming weeks, that uh, I grew up on stories of the horrors of Jim Crow, Mississippi, where my parents were born and raised before they were forced to flee to St. Louis, where I was born. And I've come to the conclusion over the years that you cannot understand the heart of darkness that is Mississippi without understanding the pre-existing era of the violent uprooting and dispossession of the Choctaw and the Chickasaw in particular, the indigenous populations, which is one of the reasons why I'm sponsoring a prize in the name of my parents, uh, Jerry and Flora Horn, uh, for the best uh, manuscript that explains that particular hypothesis. That is to say, the connections between indigenous history and black history and why one horror easily bleeds into a, another horror. Once again, it's on Pacifica Radio that you're able to receive these kinds of fundamental basic historical lessons. Certainly, once again, you will not receive these sorts of lessons uh, on MSNBC, on NPR, on CNN, it is solely and 
only on Pacifica Radio. Now, another place that people can get this type of insight is that we're having an event with you. And I wanted to remind everyone about that again, if I didn't mention it already, on October 27th, save the date at 6 p.m. We will host Professor Gerald Horn at the beautiful Cultural Arts Center of Montgomery Community College. That's right at the corner of Georgia Avenue and East West Highway. And this is a beautiful venue. We're, we're going to have student groups, youth groups there that are active in radical politics, politics of social change there with their tables there. But we're also going to have him talking about these two books, reading from them. And also we'll have a number of other books that you can buy and that he will sign. Uh, We'll have a reception and have a really good time and uh, celebrate Gerald Horan. And we're happy to have him. Um, That's October 27th, six o'clock. The doors will open and we'll have a reception. We'll have a book signing. We'll have a book talk and some special special events that night. So that's another way that you can support this mainly for the folks in DC. But if you're in New York and you you're in the, in the area, or if you want to come down when we did the event in June, Gerald, we had a person come from Los Angeles (laughs) to see you. I'm serious. He wasn't just like stopping by because he was in the area. Another person came from Chicago. (laughs) So people are really interested in the subject matter. They, they understand that, our venues to to hear truth, to mobilize, to resist, they have to be preserved and they have to be protected. We're going to have to wrap up right now, but I tried to cover some of the interesting aspects of the books. There's so many, but is there something that maybe I didn't touch on that you might want to wind up with? Well, in the I Dare Say book, there's an essay on the anti-apartheid movement, which the DMV played a, a pivotal role. It's one of our most significant victories uh, in uh, recent decades. Uh, I'm happy to say that I was not only a chronicler of that movement, but a participant and observer uh, in that mm-hmm. movement. Uh, I once lived in Zimbabwe and, in fact, wrote a book about Zimbabwe before I wrote a larger book about the entire uh, subregion, which involved doing research in the rich. African National Congress archives at Fort Hare University, uh, not far from the Indian Ocean coast of South Africa itself. So uh, I'm I'm very uh, proud of that particular contribution uh, because it not only involved, once again, uh, research, but it involved, uh, in a sense, detailing my own personal role. All right. Like I said, that's definitely a special part of this package. So I dare say a Gerald Horn reader and acknowledging radical histories is $75, but you can get both for $125. So since that is the best deal, I know that you will will pick up your credit card and go to the phone or go online to wpfwfm.org in D.C. or give to wbai.org in New York City. And um, also the tickets for the October 27th event are $25 and two tickets for $40. We're really looking forward to seeing Gerald and 
having a really wonderful night with with young people here who are going to be talking. They'll be there with their information about their social just social justice work, and um, I'm really looking forward to it. A really special evening. 202-588-9739 or 212-209-2950. Thank you so much, Gerald, for joining me uh, to help me raise money for the station. We so appreciate your generosity of your time and your the books and everything to help help Pacifica stay alive. It's it's really important for for our longevity as well. Thank you for inviting me. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, Twitter, or or on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. And listen to our podcast on all your podcast platforms including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all the platforms. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix, and we also play Terrorist by Low Key. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.
And the very first thing that I want to say on this lovely afternoon is all power to the Palestinian resistance. Let me hear you say all power. Children. 
So right here in the so-called greatest country on earth, we have hunger, we have homelessness, we have low wages, we have a racist police terror, we have all of these issues, but yet somehow there isn't enough money and resources to do anything 